Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that brings you magic-related financial information without taking two hours to resolve a brainstorm. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the Interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey guys, glad to be here, and I'm looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. The show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what do we got for the folks today? Well, James, this week we've got four segments. Our first segment is the Top Movers, where we'll walk you through the cards with the biggest gains and losses this week. Then we're on to our picks of the week, as James and I share what we think are some of the best places to put your magic dollars. After that, we'll hit on recent tournament results to identify opportunities in the ever-shifting metagame, and we'll finish up with this week's hot topic, the modern buyout frenzy of January 2016. All right, everybody, let's jump right in on our first segment of the week, our top movers, uh, where we're going to cover the cards that have spiked and fallen the hardest in the past seven days. Uh, Travis, you want to start us off? Sure. This week, our list starts out with Karn Liberated from both Modern Masters 2 and New Phyrexia. He came into the week around $35, and he's sitting at about 60 bucks right now for a good 70% a good seventy percent gain. This is definitely predicated on Splinter Twins ban, uh, where people think Remand was keeping that deck down, and people are excited to play Tron in this new metagame. Yep, makes sense to me. I mean, the card uh, held uh, a low line uh, in the late 20s, kind of early 30s, um, for pretty much the entire period um, since it was re- re-released in MM2, and not surprising to see uh, a rise on a card that's uh, has casual legs, EDH usage, and a home in modern. Okay, next up on our list is Valakit, the Molten Pinnacle from Zendikar and the pre-release. Came in the week uh, around $4, 3 to $4, and is pushing $9 uh, for about a 90% gain. We've seen Scapeshift spike also, Scapeshift also spike in the wake of the Splinter Twin ban. Uh, Scapeshift itself moved considerably as well, though not, not high enough percentage to register on our list here. But the, the four of land that makes that combo work nearly doubled this week, and I wouldn't be surprised to see this price stop moving. You're not playing Scapeshift without Valakits, and we've only ever seen it once. Yep, totally true. And there's also a couple of different shells that have tried to fold um, the scapeshift um, shell uh, within their own. So it'd be interesting to see if somebody comes up with something unique um, to really drive this card home. Um, next in, next on the list, we have Thought Not Seer out of Oath of the Gatewatch, a card that started pre-orders uh, closer to $5 and has settled in and around 15 right now. A lot of people expecting this card to be a player, certainly in standard and possibly in modern, as the second coming of Vendillion Click, wouldn't you say, Travis? Absolutely. I'm kicking myself for not having pre-ordered these at around 3 to $4 a piece. I saw them spoiled. I loved the card, knew it was going to be played, and for some reason decided to hold off. I guess I was hoping they'd, they'd be a dollar, and I was the only person who was going to notice this card was good. That's not the way it happened, and this is now probably five times over its initial pre-release price. Uh, I'm just glad I pulled two of them at, uh, at our pre-release this past weekend. 
Yeah, I uh, I noticed that as of the time of this recording, uh, Star City Games has uh, some copies of the foil back up at about $30, which doesn't look like it leaves much uh, room for gain in the short term. But if it ends up being a four of in multiple decks in both standard and modern, you know, maybe there's some there's meat left on the bone that could be a 50 or 60 foil rare in the future. I agree. Next up is Pia and Kieran Nalar, uh, which I will never not know as Key and Peel. It's impossible for me to <laughs> ever actually type that correctly. Uh, it's from Magic Origins, a set that has quietly been sneaking up on everyone's radar. Uh, this came into the week at a little over $2 and is pushing $5 right now for an over 100% gain. Uh, this is quickly becoming one of the best value four drops in modern, uh, beating out Huntmaster the Fells and some of the other options. Uh, you know, Alex Bianchi won that modern GP not that long ago in Pittsburgh. He had a few of these in his sideboard. This is one that I, I dismissed at first. Uh, Alex is a buddy of mine. He told me about it. He said it's a real card. It was on my radar. I was watching TCG player. Copies were available under a dollar. Uh, I kind of stopped thinking about it. I got busy looking at other stuff. And we sit down to look at this today. And I'm kicking myself because this is already up probably four to five times where it was even two months ago. Yeah, with with Jace holding down the value of a lot of the rares and origins, um, there there's been a ton of value in dollar and two dollar rares that have future spike potential. And P and Kieran Lar is just the first one to really make a big splash in modern after Harbinger of the Tides did well in in Merfolk um, earlier, uh, late in 2015. So you know this one this isn't the first. It's not going to be the last rare. And you know origins is still uh, high on my list of uh, uh, sets to be considering for investment potential. I like it. So Stony Silence is next on our list, uh, having spiked from 5 or $6 up into the 12 or $13 range. Um, I bought in on several copies, uh, around 7 or $8 over the weekend, um, predicated on the fact that it's only seen a single printing and uh, Affinity may step in um, to drive home the aggro role in Modern. We'll see how that goes with the Pro Tour, but Stony Silence is also uh, a dual-use card. Um, it can uh, give both Tron and Eldrazi um, uh, Tron uh, troubles in modern by shutting down uh, expedition maps and uh, making it difficult uh, for people to go search up the things that they need. So um, Stony Silence has room to you know settle in in the high teens if it doesn't see a reprinting this year, and uh, I'm comfortable holding copies until then. You know, Stony Silence really makes me think. There's this this adage in Magic Finance that says, "Don't buy sideboard cards. Uh, they they don't they don't drive prices. You, you buy deck staples." But you know, we've already seen it with Blood Moon, where Blood Moon was a sideboard card, and that's gained considerable value over the last year and a half, even since its original Modern Masters printing. And I wonder if here, perhaps, the key is to look for uh, sideboard cards that can move into main decks. Blood Moon was a sideboard card that kept pushing and pushing into main decks, and Li Shi Chan really pushed to that theme with Blue Moon, uh, a pro tour or two ago. And Stony Silence may be making that move to the main deck now as well. You know, it hoses affinity, and then you get incidental value against a lot of other people. So I'll be keeping my eye out for sideboard cards in the future that look like they're starting to sneak into main decks because it seems like there could be some lucrative uh, ground there. Makes sense. Next on our list is Kiki Jiki, um, the Mirror Breaker from both Modern Masters, Modern Masters 2, Champions of Kamigawa, I think, and from the Vault Legends. Uh, this one's not too surprising. Again, Splinter Twin Band, we are seeing a lot of movement because of that, and Kiki Jiki is just seen as a natural replacement for it. I'm not convinced this can take Splinter Twin's place, uh, especially not as a four of, but uh, time will tell. 
Yeah, there's there's it's actually more likely that it shows up as a as a two or a three of in Kiki Core decks um, that you know Jeff Hoogland made popular uh, last year. Um, there's a lot of room for that deck to do well um, in the absence of Twin. Um, it was a little slower than Twin. Twin being out of the format gives it a window of opportunity to perform. Um, some people may choose to try to fold Kiki Jiki into their um, their Twin shells, but they're going to find that. It, you know, it doesn't let them play the same instant speed game that they're used to. Um, even still, I mean, most of the printings of this card are either very old in the original Champions of Kamigawa or relatively limited um, in the sense that it was printed in both Modern Masters and from the vault where its its status is probably uh, best described as ultra mythic um, versus uh, standard releases. So uh, it's got it's, you know, shown some growth. And uh, let's see if it bears out of the Pro Tour. Can't wait. What's next, James? Next up, we have Urborg, Tomb of Yogmoth, originally printed in Planar Chaos and reprinted in M14. This is a rare that many people in MTG Finance were recommending you go out and lock down several copies of um, to stash away for future gains when it was uh, bottoming out at $5 or so while it was still in standard. And here we have it um, back up over 20 as people realized the interaction between Eye of Ugin and Urborg was just completely ridiculous and turned the Eye of Ugin uh, into almost a better Misha's workshop in the Eldrazi decks, which uh, may be on the verge of making a major breakthrough in modern. Yeah, Urborg in conjunction with Eye of Ugin is just ridiculous. Uh, you know, I would go so far as to say it might actually just be better than workshop. You know, you only get to tap, tap workshop for three mana once. This is a permanent two mana reduction to all of your spells or Eldrazi spells at least, and it taps her mana, and it tutors too? That's ridiculous. I've heard people talk about banning Eye of Ugin in Modern already, which is ridiculous. Nothing's happened yet, but I wouldn't be surprised to see us talking about this next this time next year uh, when Eye of Ugin gets the axe because of Urborg. And, uh, so yeah, that this this card is really re- helping breathe, not breathe life into a new archetype, but make a new archetype more viable than we may have anticipated. Uh, And we might not be seeing the end of this card at $25. It's worth noting that the piece that probably gets banned in the Eldrazi deck, if it performs, is Eye of Ugin almost certainly and not Urborg. So it should uh, retain most of its value moving forward. There's many other uh, uses for the deck to fix mana bases in modern. It's also a strong casual and EDH card. Um, So the next on the list, we've got Leonin Arbiter. Um, part of the Hate Bears posse. Uh, this card uh, is up to just over $5 from about $2 for a gain of about 140%. And uh, I think this is also part of uh, a metagame shift as people look for ways to handle uh, big mana decks with big threats. Um, putting this guy alongside a card like Gaddock Teague can really give decks that want to search up solutions and lands a fit. Yeah, this one has been quietly rising for years now. There was a humongous supply after Scars mirrored, and and copies were slowly being drained out of the wild as people bought their sets. And we are finally nearing the end of that really liquid inventory as stores begin to dry up and people get excited to try out this archetype in a twinless format. Uh, I've been pulling them out of my bulk boxes for years, waiting for it to pop. And you know, I'm just hoping to see this thing hit double digits so I can cash out on these. So Travis, the, the the biggest gainer of the week is uh, last but probably also least um, the card Mind Slicer, a <laughs> rare from both Odyssey Block and Ninth Edition, uh, four three for two and two black. When it goes to the graveyard, all players discard their entire hands. I have no idea why this spiked, and I can't figure out if somebody knows more about the modern metagame than I do, or they just had a bad idea for a spec. 
Well, you know, James, as rumor has it, apparently LSV was on stream with Paul Chion, and I think he made a joke about Mind Slicer, and as a result, people went out and bought the card. Uh, you know, Stormcrow is obnoxiously expensive for an awful card, so people have bought worse cards for dumber reasons. I, I really don't, you know, that story may have some missing details, I'm not sure, but uh, it is pretty ridiculous. I don't think this is predicated on anything real. I would be selling every po copy I could possibly get money for right now if you have any left over, because I'm pretty sure we're going to see this back at $1.50 within the month. Yeah, I just pulled out some some copies from my bulk, and I would be happy to move them to anybody who's listening for a very reasonable price. So feel free to uh, hit me up for the super hot mind slicer. So New moving channels, on to our, James, <laughs> moving on to our biggest drops of the week, we have uh, uh, Oriok Champion um, and Greater Oromancy experiencing post spike contractions. Um, Oriok Champion down to about thirty five from forty five at, at its peak in the spike last week. Greater Oromancy was up to almost twenty five and is back down to about fifteen, um, both falling somewhere between twenty and thirty percent. We also have uh, Kalidus from uh, Oath of the Gatewatch um, sliding a little bit, probably on declining interest for Standard, would you think, Travis? Yeah, definitely. The Eldrazi have taken center stage in Oath of the Gatewatch at this point. Uh, that's captured everyone's attention, and Kalidus just is not that exciting relative to what the Eldrazi are doing at this point. We saw this in Battle for Zendikar with Drana, Liberator of Malakir, came out big and bold and has just dropped off the face of the earth after a strong pre-release uh, numbers. And I think we're seeing the same thing with Colitis here. So uh, is there a universe where this card is good and ends up being worth a lot of money? Definitely, but it's not going to be right away because people are way more interested in casting Thought Knots here. Yeah, and in, in my mind, Kalidus is more of a long-term casual hold, um, and I'll be looking to pick it up at its lows um, on the assumption that even if it finds its way into a standard deck, it's not going to be a four of um, as a four casting cost legend, and it's probably not going to be in, in a ton of decks because it doesn't have uh, utility outside of situations where it has specific synergy. Foils of this could be interesting from a casual EDH perspective. He's not he's not a terrible commander, but uh, yeah, overall there's there's nothing too exciting here. Fair enough. All right, folks, we're going to move on to our second segment of the evening, uh, the cards to watch. These are the cards um, that we think are uh, the uh, cards and and sometimes sealed product um, that we think are worth your consideration as places to park some of your hard-earned earned dollars in pursuit of uh, playing Magic the Gathering a little more cheaply. Uh, getting in before a potential spike or, uh, you know, if you've got uh, extra funds lying around, maybe to do some speculation and, and see if you can come out ahead of the game. Um, for each of these cards, we're going to tell you, you know, the addition um, that we're talking about, whether it's foil or non-foil, and we're going to break down for you whether we think it's a short, uh, mid or long-term spec, um, short being less than six months, uh, a mid-term spec being six to 12 months, and long-term being anything that takes more than a year to appreciate. So, James, uh, why don't you go ahead and lead off with your first card this week? So, my first pick this week is Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger out of Battle for Zendikar. Um, if you were really smart and on the ball, um, you would have seen that given the power level of this card uh, and the fact that we still had a set left in the Eldrazi block, uh, picking him up at 10 to 12 in November was a very, very good place to be. But even at the current level of $25 as a potential four of in both standard and modern. Um, I think this could end up being our Elspeth Suns champion uh, of this block cycle and could easily end up in the $40 range before the end of the year, giving you a potential you know, $15 per copy or 60% gain minus expenses. 
Uh, keeping with tonight's theme of cards Travis should feel bad about, uh, I spent weeks hemming and hawing over buying this card at between 10 and 13. And I had originally written an article where I said, don't spec on anything from Battle for Zendikar because we are unsure of how hard the expeditions will hit set value. And I didn't pull the trigger uh, at 10 bucks because I was like, I'm going to listen to my own advice. I don't know if it's worth getting into, but I could definitely see this card being quite expensive. And now here we are. So I do feel bad. So, <laughs> uh -huh. all right, we'll go ahead, James. Yeah, so I mean, Ulamog is just, you know, the de facto best Eldrazi and the one most likely to be played as a four of. And I think that's, you know, the important part. The the original Eldrazi being, you know, his, the original Ulamog, for instance, being an 11 casting cost card, um, designated it to big mana decks only. But this interaction between Urborg and uh, uh, Eye of Ugin means that, you know, his 10 casting cost is really more like five or six from for all you know practical concerns or you know by if we're measuring by what turn it's going to be cast on um and and on that basis it, it looks like a strong contender as at least a tier two deck in modern if not a tier one deck yeah and i and i guess my only point of solace here comes from the fact that when i was looking at this we didn't have any oath of the gate watch cards and as those began to get spoiled and we saw that the aldrazi were really being pushed the card had already climbed up towards twenty dollars so um, okay, so I'm going to move on to my first pick this week. Uh, it's a short-term pick, and it is Noble Hierarch, uh, either from Modern Masters 2 or uh, Shards of Alara. I think it's Shards of Alara. Again, that whole block runs together for me. Uh, you know, we're looking at prices on this around a little over $30 right now, and I could easily see this at $50 within the next few months uh, for, for a pretty substantial gain. This card is currently sitting at about half of its lifetime ceiling. It used to be over $75. It's played in all the collected company decks. It's played in all the infect lists. Uh, we see it all over the place. Um, it's just it's just a heavily played one drop. I mean, it's the best Birds of Paradise since Birds of Paradise. I, I really like the future of this one, and it's been quiet so far, uh, despite all of the modern activity. But I don't think that means we should be counting this guy out. And uh, I really think there's some profit in this card. And even if you don't connect this year, you're guaranteed to make money within the next year. Yeah, and I mean, the, the fact that Hierarch slots into so many decks um, and is highly unlikely to see yet another reprint, um, uh, at least before uh, Modern Masters 2017 in a year and a half, um, means that, you know, worst case scenario, you know, nine to 12 months from now, if you haven't seen the kind of gains that you're referring to, you'll be have no problem trading it out to somebody who needs it for one or another deck. Okay, so what's your next card, James? So uh, my other pick is another card that's already appreciated a, a reasonable amount this year, but I think it's got further to go, and that's Jace Vryn's Prodigy, uh, specifically the foil editions, um, currently sitting around $90 to $95. And uh, my target for this card is $150 um, as a long-term hold, so um, probably between a year and two years from now um, for a 50 to 60% return. Um, you know, people have been betting against Jace from the very moment he debuted, and we've been wrong almost every single time. Um, from the research I've done looking at decks lists in, in Modern and Legacy, um, Jace is as played, if not more played, depending on what metagame you're looking at, um, than Liliana of the Veil. And Liliana has now um, uh, peaked over $100 for the second time in her career. Um Jace foils are, uh, the multiplier is uh, less than two times. It's something around 1.4, 1.5 um, on the foils. 
And, you know, this is from Origins, which was not a set that was heavily opened by comparison to something like a, a Battle for Zendikar or a Ravnica. Um, it's a two drop planeswalker that is in demand all the way back to vintage. And I think those foils uh, have a very good chance of, of peaking in the two to $300 range before he ever sees any chance of a reprint. Well, you know, the fact that the fact that he's a flip planeswalker of course makes it very hard for them to print him, um, in just any old set or ancillary product, because most of the machines that print those sets can't handle flip planeswalkers. They have to be specially configured. So, you know, I think, and, and, and the other part of this is that if I, uh, is that he was already printed in a San Diego Comic-Con edition last summer, which is essentially sold out everywhere. I believe, Travis, you had your hands on one of those at some point. Uh, I did. I managed to acquire one, and it is a lot less than the three of the, the limited edition ones that I found the year prior, which is which is a real bummer. I did pick up a, a uh, STCC sat when Jace really started the spike. I think I paid uh, about $600 for mine, which was about 150 bucks a copy, which... I couldn't be happier with because, uh, you know, this card is, it does, it seizes a lot of play. seems, I mean, basically more than Liliana at this point. And you'll remember the pack foil Liliana's were over $250 before the RPTQ promo uh, announcement. So uh, I definitely like, well, Jace's long-term shot here. Yes. I mean, my final word on Jace is that y- you might see some weakness uh, on the card itself and the foils as we get closer to him rotating out of standard this fall. That might be your, your best entry point. Um, definitely a card to keep your eye on um, and, you know, a card you're going to be unlikely to be unhappy to own since it's almost certainly going to be a major player in, in all eternal formats moving forward. All right. My next card uh, is sort of a, a short mid straddle. It's doubling season. Uh, any of the non-foil copies specifically. Uh, right now we're looking at copies in the low to mid thirties. And this seems like another card that could really climb up to $50, possibly even 60 pretty easily. Uh, and, and I identify this one because I have some listed for sale and no matter how many I list, they just keep selling. And I've been watching the inventory. It's very low. There are very few copies between most of the major vendors. And even on TCG player, there's, there's not many play sets, but this is not a card that people buy for, uh, for the most part. I mean, it may be casual players, but this is a pretty expensive card for a casual player to buy into. So we're really seeing EDH demand here, which is, which is one copy at a time, but even still, um, I mean, one local, play group who all decides they want to play doubling season could almost empty the internet. And, uh, you know, doubling season has proven time and time again, it's ability to bounce back from, from price, uh, price valleys after reprints. So this is just, this is just right for, uh, for easy money. Yeah. One of the more popular casual and EDH cards of all time, um, a card that makes other cards, uh, you know, amazing. And when they introduced planeswalkers, um, and their counters, it just got better. So, um, yeah, I can buy into that one. My next pick is uh, Booster Boxes of Origins. Um, if you believe that Jace is going to go places, then um, the fact that Origins Booster Boxes are sold out at, at many LGSs and yet still available online in various locations for about $90 a box, you know, standard in-print box price. Um, uh, if I had to pick any Booster Box to own right now other than, say, Japanese Modern Masters 2015... Um, it would definitely be Origins booster boxes. Um, I could see these boxes. It's definitely a long-term hold um, because the set is still in print, technically. Um, but I could see these boxes getting up to 150 to 160 in a hurry um, once nobody's cracking them for standard anymore and they're not in shops. 
and you know people are looking to get their hands on a Jace, just look at the pattern on uh, a heavily printed full set like Innistrad because it has Liliana, because it had Snapcaster. That's a 200 plus uh, booster box. And Origins is a pretty really deep set. Um, Jace is currently holding down the price of a lot of rares like Harbinger of the Tides, like Vryn Wingmare, etc. All you know holding these rares down in around the one to two dollar range. But once the the set goes out of print. Um, what what tends to happen is that um, dealers can no longer replace stock simply by cracking boxes and 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 selling uh, up the chain, and instead uh, th- there's going to be a situation where the expected value of an Origins box between the ten or fifteen Eternal playable cards in that set um, is going to exceed two hundred dollars, and when it exceeds two hundred dollars, the price of the booster boxes will rise accordingly. I like it. My last choice is Foil Battle for Zendikar Basics. Um, these are floating around in the 5 to $10 range, probably a little closer to the high end on that now. Uh, but, you know, you lo- go back and look at original Zendikar Foil Basic Lands, and I think they start at 15 or $20, and some of them are upwards of 35 and 40 We've added a lot of new players to the game since the first Foil Zendikar Basics came out, and I think a lot of those players were priced out of the original Foil set. And now that we've got a new group back in rotation with Battle for Zendikar, I think there's a lot of players that are going to be looking to fill their personal collections with these. And, you know, this is not a card that you even buy four of. These are cards that you want five, ten, sometimes even 15 copies of. So, you know, the demand profile on this per player is much greater than they normally are. Uh, you know, this is a long-term buy. Yeah, I'm not expecting to make a lot of money on these today or tomorrow. But, you know, I this seems like a car, uh, set of cards you could throw a few hundred dollars at and be very happy with the outcome uh, in a year and a half, two years. Yep. Makes sense to me. All right. Our third segment of the week is the weekend review in the tournament scene. Um, this week, because we had a pre-release last weekend, we're going to be talking about the, the SCG open modern tournament in Charlotte, North Carolina, two weekends ago. Um, in particular, I'll just do a quick recap of the top eight decks and then we can talk about the, the things that caught my eye here. Um, in first, we had Jund, and second, Goryeo's Vengeance, third was Abzan Company, fourth was, um, I guess, the final performance of Twin. Uh, in fifth, we had White Black Tokens, um, sixth, another Abzan deck, seventh was Naya Company, and eighth was Kiki Cord, a deck that uh, has uh, driven some spike, price spikes on Kiki Jiki this week. Um, so Travis, the, the the two things that jumped out at me here was the Gorio's Vengeance deck, which is arguably just as dangerous as Twin, um, placing second. Um, by the logic uh, behind the Twin ban this week, should therefore at least be on the watch list over at Wizards. Yeah, that, that, no doubt. I was a little surprised to see that this didn't get axed. I guess the reason is that it hasn't put up the results yet that Amulet Bloom did. Uh, but this is on my short list of cards to be banned, and I'm sure Wizards as well. Um, you know, if Wizards holds to its guns and doesn't put up another ban list until this time next year, we could see uh, we see a lot of people real angry about this deck by then. Uh, the, the, it seems like the only thing that prevents itself from that prevents it from taking over the format is itself. You know, I've played it. My friends have played it. Um, this is a deck that that tends to kind of fall into itself. Sometimes you lose you lose to your own hand even after you resolve the combo. Uh, but the power level is pretty extreme, and you can win on turn one. And turn two or three is not bad either. It's not too hard, especially without disruption. Uh, but uh, you know, there, there's definitely some room here. Uh, Gristle Brand, especially. You know, we're finishing up that GP promo. It's finally off the shelves, uh, and we could see that start to tick up over the next several months if if this continues to perform. Exactly. 
I mean, there's also the fact that Gristlebrand has been held down by his GP promo, which is actually a beautiful version of the card. Um, you know, in Much the better. twelve to thirteen dollar, twelve to thirteen dollar range. And you know, if the deck keeps performing well, Gristlebrand, of course, has lots of casual demand as well. Um, you know, that would be a card to watch uh, out of that deck. All right, Travis. So uh, it's actually the fifth place deck, the white black tokens build by Josh Cho. That's got me the most excited um, uh, out of out of this meta game. Um, it's he's he's running three Oriok Champion main, which is behind that the spike of that card this week. Um, he's also got two copies of Gideon Ally of Zendikar from Battle of Zendikar, and one copy of Soren Solemn Visitor, um, Cons of Tarkir Planeswalker. Um, these are, to my knowledge, the first high-profile debuts of these cards in modern. Um, he's also running four copies of Bitter Blossom, um, a card that we're, we're all aware is powerful, but that's been largely off the radar since the heyday of blue-black fairies. Um, and, you know, this was a build that looked very consistent every time it was on camera. Um, he had a good game against a lot of different decks. Um, and potentially with Twin out of the format, um, you know, maybe maybe this deck has some room to to continue to grow. I mean, I love the the fact that Oriok Champion can shrug off a lightning bolt um, shrug off all the black removal, you know, keeps you uh, ahead on life against decks like uh, Naya Zoo and Burn. Um, uh, there's there's a lot of play in this deck, and it's uh, certainly the most innovative uh, build of the week. Uh, yeah, I agree. And and Bitter Blossom is definitely a card that that I'll be keeping on my radar, especially if you're at the trade tables. This is a card to watch out for and pick up because you're even if the card never spikes, you're still going to find somebody that wants to trade for it. You know, Bitter Blossom was. Seventy or eighty dollars when it was first unbanned. I don't think it's been that expensive since it was released initially uh, when it ran over standard, uh, however many years ago. So that that's definitely the the card to watch in this deck, I think. And, and I'm happy to trade for these wherever I can find them. Yeah, I mean this is this is a Modern Masters 2015 card um, printed at Mythic rarity, so more Mythic than Mythic, really, because of the the limited print run on the Modern Masters editions. And, you know, still sitting under $25. So if this deck continues to do well, um, certainly something to have your keep your eye on. Um, this deck was also running for Inquisition of Kozilek, you know, a card that spiked very hard recently. Um, uh, so it's it's not the cheapest deck to build, but I certainly love the idea of Gideon, ally of Zendikar, um, finding a permanent home in modern. So uh, I wish White Black Tokens all the best. And last but not least this week is our hot topic. And this week it's the major modern price spikes we've been seeing. Uh, You know, every year we see a lot of activity around this time of the year in late January, early February. Uh, This year it started a lot earlier, though. We saw it come in before the end of the year, which is about a month ahead of normal schedule. Uh, It's something that myself and a lot of other finance writers were we were expecting it, but not this early. And not only did it come in early, it came in wide and hard. It just seems like everything about this this year has been, it started earlier, cards are spiking harder, and there's more of them spiking. What do you make of it, James? Well, I mean, I can certainly understand how some players, especially ones that are limited by budget constraints, um, are frustrated with this situation. Um, you know, it's easy to say you should have gone ahead and bought these cards earlier, but, you know, not everybody can is in position to do that when the time is right. Um, but I think, you know, if you want to play Magic uh, long term, you, you need to accept the fact that there is an economy built around the game. Um, the way that the game has been structured from day one with, you know, varying rarities and the fact, that, you know, its position as a flagship collectible card game um, has made it essentially inevitable that there are going to be... Um, you know, vendors who are going to 
um, control and buyout inventory. There are players who are going to try to make their decks cheaper by um, buying additional copies of cards they think will spike. And there's going to be speculators who will, you know, put some money into the market and and hope that it beats their return um, on their stock portfolio. And I think that when we when we see a card um, spike, as we've seen with many of the modern cards recently, it's a combination of all of those things happening. We, as you know, decks get banned, cards get banned, um, new cards appear to make other decks better, as we're seeing with the Eldrazi deck in modern now. Um, you know, it's totally natural that that card cards are going to experience price movement. Now, is that is that movement more immediate? Um, more extreme than it was, say, five or 10 years ago. It probably is, but I think that's part of the the natural cultural shift that has come from having, you know, greater access to information online. We have multiple sites like mtgprice.com that track the price of cards and provide daily uh, updates uh, as to, you know, the movement on, on key cards. And, you know, more and more players are aware through the use of their smartphones um, of, you know, the current pricing. I mean, what store in North America isn't referencing either TCG Player or Star City Games for for their price algorithm um, to try to triangulate pricing and make sure that they're properly positioned in the market? And, you know, uh, player, players need to be aware that this is going to be an ongoing thing. There's not a whole lot they can do about it other than trying to plan in advance and, and budget accordingly. The, the You know, you're absolutely right. This is... This is not even necessarily about the tools. You know, the tools were available. The, t- the tools are new to us within the last two or three years that we're not there. Uh, that, that's a great deal of additional data. But on top of that, we have a lot of data analysis that definitely wasn't there. Uh, two or three years ago, three years ago, you had one writer writing about this. And now you have MTG Price, which is an entire site dedicated to this topic. So not only are the tools in people's hands, you've got other people analyzing that and digesting that for them and making recommendations based on that. So now, and you know, it used to be that you really had to do your homework to know where to go with the format and what to buy. And it's getting served up a little more on a silver platter these days, which just means it's more accessible to more people. And, you know, as you combine that with sort of perhaps a, a continually squeezed middle class, uh, being able to, to, to make your magic budget go further is important to a lot of people. My lesson for this is uh, I'm going to have to start saving my pennies a lot earlier this year because I'm going to be buying Christmas gifts and modern cards at the same time and before next year before Christmas uh, to make sure that I get ahead of the curve. I mean, traditionally, the, the period just before Christmas has been uh, a really great place to be hunting for, for bargains and magic. You usually have the you're at the low of fall set prices. And, you know, a lot of the, the top cards in the fall set that bottom out around that time are, are the ones that end up rising back, you know, six to 12 months down the road as, as people stop opening that set. So, you know, the opportunities are there. People just need to, you know, get on board a little earlier. And, you know, if, if something spikes, there's no real point in being frustrated. The great thing about modern is there are 20 plus viable decks, um, especially in your local metagame. And if you're not, you know, not trying to make the pro tour, you don't need to have the best deck. You need to have the best deck for you that lets you have the maximum amount of fun. And, you know, there's a lot of options. They've done a good job of constructing a format that, that lets players build reasonably priced decks, you know, given the commitment to the hobby. Uh, I agree. It's, it's really easy to get caught up with how expensive some of these cards are, but not every strategy requires terribly expensive cards and most strategies except for the absolute top tier builds require more than one Uh, there you can be having a lot of fun at your local store and still remaining competitive without playing only the top three lists in the format and uh i can testify to that having won multiple events playing ridiculous brews and having lost many many games to ridiculous brews uh 
my most one of the ones that I remember fondly that was quite cheap was uh, Flame Jab and World Fire, along with Spellweaver Helix. So if anyone's looking for a budget strategy, that one that one was amusing. Got a lot of looks when I cast that combo. <laughs> that sounds fun. And that's a wrap for this week, folks. Where can people find you, James? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. Uh, and I'm Travis Allen. You can find me on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. And I'm also a weekly writer at MTG Price every Wednesday. Uh, that brings us to the end of our first MTG Fast Finance podcast. And I've really enjoyed our discussion today, James. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank <laughs> you.